time in months and what a glorious thing it is yeah and um which uh which movie was it please remind our audience uh, so i went to because we are not allowed to go to the actual cinema in melbourne yet that's yep but we're just saying cinemas are on the uh, same schedule to reopen as brothels yep. i think for obvious reasons um mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it just makes perfect sense. Uh, yeah, but there are only so many places that you can get a hand job in the middle of this. Exactly oh. right. I mean, like, you know, Pee Wee Herman recommends Melbourne Cinemas. That <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, the drive ins are allowed to open and open air cinemas, vote. Mm. If you look outside today, it is not open air cinema kind of weather. Um, no. But the drive ins are open. So I went to the uh, Coburg drive in here in Melbourne to see uh, The Matrix. Um, a film we reviewed a couple of months ago. Yep. And that's the first time I've seen it on the big screen since 1999 or something. Yeah. Um, and it was absolutely chock-a-block because we haven't been able to go to cinema in months of any kind. Yeah. And it was a warm night and, you know, they had Starship Troopers on the other screen. Uh, I think you, it's a right, I think somebody's watching our podcast or listening to our podcast and going, Hmm, these guys have their finger on the pulse. Let's play obscure 90s sci-fi films. Um, You're welcome, outdoor cinema world. <laughs> uh, t- tonight, actually, I would have liked to have gone, but it's a bit late because uh, I have to work. But tonight is there a 1989 Batman. Uh, oh. And uh, like, I would have liked to have gone to that, but uh, it was good to be back. Um, it was good to be back at the, uh, the cinema, um, and uh, I can see myself doing it a fair few more times over the coming weeks i would imagine or however long it takes for us to be able to go back to a real cinema again yep yep it'll be interesting to see what happens i mean um we have had the um the restrictions lifted to a certain degree um and melbourne of course showed their stupidity so like first sunny weekend or a hot public holiday lock everywhere and fuck the rules but <laughs> never mind yeah i mean they did it in the uk this summer and it's been fine in the uk yeah. everything's, everything's yeah. going well i mean you mm-hmm. know i saw all, all the major western countries um that that are primarily english speaking are really doing great things right now actually come on now that is that is disrespectful to new zealand <laughs> i just they are doing very nicely. Thank New Zealand is not exactly what I would refer to as one of the top powers of the world. I was going to say, if what you were going to say, New Zealand is not what you would refer to as a country, and in which case <laughs> I would tend to agree with you. It's just a state. Very <laughs> state. Of, they, are, yeah. <laughs> they are a state of Australia. They just don't know it yet. They're just the granny flat of Australia. <laughs> very true. It's a granny flat, yeah. It's a, they're out the back. They're out the back who are doing much much better than us right now and i have a, a friend who's on uh, over she's actually a kiwi mm. um and she moved back there probably a month six weeks ago because mm. why the fuck wouldn't you yeah um and she saw these pictures of where she's in gisborne and dunedin and stuff in the south and you're like no <laughs> uh, uh, they're allowed to have art shows and cinemas and wineries and lions and tigers and bears and my uh, it was just you know no, just, not, they're allowed to leave their states <laughs> i um uh we'll be able to go to new south wales by the end of a month um but yeah. uh i um uh, i did tell her actually i said your instagram right now is the biggest advertisement for new zealand since lord of the rings because <laughs> it's 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 a glorious thing watching her, her instagram you're like oh uh, so kudos new zealand you're doing very well and frankly yeah. 
let's face it, I'd like to put that a hat off to us. The rest of the country has done very nicely. It's really been us here in Melbourne who let down the side. Yeah, we've been um, pretty stupid. Um, but, you know, hopefully all the dickheads at the beach the other day mm-hmm. um, didn't go spreading the virus too badly, though. I mean, yeah, okay. let's hope. Let's hope. hope. Let's hope's all we got. But um, we're not here to discuss uh, current affairs and the state of the uh, coronavirus. We're going to yep. uh, avoid the miserable news that's going on around the world today and talk yep. about old movies from the 80s. Yes, because what is more important than staying on topic, pinpoint the the, the laser-fine edge of um uh, society and pop culture yes we are going to be talking about big trouble in little china <laughs> um <laughs> again this is not the first time we've viewed it on the show but it is a good movie so why not talk about it a little bit yeah and we don't, we don't necessarily need to talk about it for a very long time for any re- listeners um but it is the next chain in our chain session following last week's The Thing, um, one of the most iconic connections of John Carpenter and Kurt Russell together, one of the defining horror movies or thriller psychological isolationism movies of all time. We are following this up with the action comedy martial arts science fantasy bizarro medley of frankenstein monster mess that is big trouble in little china frankly you know you know the world's in a good place when you're looking back at the uh the, the crew in uh the setting of a thing and go hmm, nine months a year in uh blackout uh conditions of antarctica that sounds fairly <laughs> attractive right now <laughs> without the alien monster but yep. i'm i'm flexible Yep, yep, um, I think that's fair. <laughs> that's a, um, so, Big Trouble in Little China, the, um, you, you sort of nailed it here. Is, it says action-adventure comedy on IMDb. Yeah. Uh, a rough-and-tumble trucker helps rescue his friend's fiance from an ancient sorcerer in a supernatural battle beneath Chinatown. Um, this is John Carpenter. Well. John Carpenter is absolute best. So I think we talk about it whenever we go through and sort of talk about the stuff that he was doing yeah. at the time. But, I mean, he had one of the most remarkable runs of form oh, in the yeah. 80s, starting with Dark Star, which is an underrated film. I think his it's first film. It's a great film. And he moves on to Assault and Precinct 13, which is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Halloween, mm-hmm. iconic masterpiece. Yep. Skip all the TV movies. The Fog, underrated horror masterpiece. Yep. Escape from New York, masterpiece. Mm-hmm. The Thing, masterpiece. Yep. Christine, pretty fucking good. Starman, yep. maybe not quite to the standard of the others, but still pretty good. Big it's Trouble in China. Yeah. Then we've got Prince of Darkness, which I have not seen, but into They Live as uh, kind of sort of tying the uh, bow on and then onto some other stuff after that, which is less well-known. Yeah. Um, but that's going from 74 through 88 without a miss. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and these aren't just – these aren't like – like, you know, uh, to use a cricket terminology, these aren't ones and twos. These are boundaries he's hitting, right? Like, mm-hmm. these are, like, <laughs> and they may not have been massive hits at the time, I think. Mm. That's, but they are all iconic in their own way in the sense that we've had uh, Halloween's been remade fuck knows how many times. Yep. Um, we've had a, other remake, a remake of A Fog, I think, from memory. Um, we've had yeah. a remake of The Thing. Yeah, uh, we've had a remake of Assault and Precinct 13, mm-hmm. um, and there is a pending uh remake apparently of Escape from New York has been talked about forever. Um, well, uh, not only that, but apparently a Dwayne Johnson, uh, Big Trouble in Little China, there's rumors of a remake of They Live, 
they're kind of revisiting some of the ultimate classics and so far the only one of john carpenter's remakes that's uh, come out is the thing which is technically a prequel but it was entirely unnecessary so it doesn't bode well for the rest of them i thought it was the old sultan precinct 13 remake was okay it had our ethan mm-hmm. hawk in it and it was it wasn't terrible like yeah. it, it was it was passable but i just like when i you talk about act, um, directors who are on a run. That is mm-hmm. a run and a half of, of yeah. amazing work. Um, and while I was thinking about while I was watching this today, uh, and this just might have been something we've talked about in the past, is how ahead of his time he was in doing his film. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, just yeah. in the sense that it's in the mid-'80s, mm-hmm. um, and this film feels very heavily influenced by Asian cinema. Yep. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing. I, I, I don't know, but I'm guessing he was – watching a lot of that Hong Kong cinema that later people like Quentin Tarantino based mm-hmm. his whole thing around, you know, Hong Kong cinema. We owe Quentin Tarantino's love of Hong Kong cinema is, is legendary. It became very fashionable in the mid-90s mid, mid, mid to early 2000s. You know, John Woo was making movies in Hollywood. Um, we had the, just to go back to The Matrix, so mm-hmm. I, well, I, again, I imagine a lot of the stunts in this film are wire work, or some of them anyway. It is, yeah. This and, uh, was, this was um, there's a really interesting um, uh, interview with uh, Kurt Russell and uh, John Carpenter and they're talking about it and they say that um, rightly or wrongly, but they, they are talking along the lines of if it wasn't for movies like Big Trouble in Little China and uh, the Asian action movies or that kind of inspired that, the use of wire work, especially the evolution of it in The Matrix, just wouldn't really have happened you have to i have to agree and you know yeah. i mean I, I don't i mean i'm not gonna put my hand up and say i'm, I'm an expert in asian cinema or mm. an expert in, in you know filming stunts or anything like that yeah. but i struggle i wouldn't think to be terribly men and, and you know if you're at home and you're you're listening and, and, I, and i'm wrong please tell me i'm wrong but i can't think of too many western films major western action films that were doing you know, wire work stunts as yeah. extensively as this film was um in the mid 80s so i mean i was just sitting there watching them especially the final fight scene with a lot of those stunts and and that stunt work and after having seen the matrix the night before i'm like this is one that you probably maybe wakowski i don't know before wakowski sat down and watched this or uh, you know fans of this movie but you know this is an important part of that evolution that became such a part of action films and and here he was 10 10 12 years before uh, it became, you know, before Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and The Matrix made it, you know, the act- action film way of doing films du jour. Mm. Um, and he was he was he was there doing it. He was, uh, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely agree. And we're just talking about the film kind of rather nebulously, you know, we've spouted about John Carpenter. And it's very fair to say that we are f- absolute fans of all of his work. Um, but we haven't even touched on some of the the, the people acting in this obviously kirk russell is he's one of those guys this is one of those roles where you can just see him having so much fun i alluded to it last week his character of jack burton is kind of inconsequential to the whole movie he's just accidentally dragged along in this thing that he 
regularly does not understand. And there's, you know, one of the best bits of it, he goes into the thing, shoots up into the air and gets knocked out for a few minutes. He's like, oh yeah, we don't need our star. Let's just let the action do the talking. And, and one thing you'll notice, I think I notice more every time I see this is that, that Kurt Russell's performance in this film is basically just an impersonation of John Wayne. Yeah. The whole thing <laughs> is just him doing John Wayne. You know, you yeah. just tell what Jack Burton says, you know, like it's, it's, uh, um, and, and I think we talked about this last time, but it's it certainly considering some of the pod, other podcasting projects I work on, mm. um, from an, a, from a diversity perspective, uh, and it's actually here, John Carpenter envisages the film as an, an inverse of traditional scenarios and action films with mm. a Caucasian protagonist helped by a minority psychic. Mm. Jack Burton, despite his bravado, was constantly betrayed as rather bumbling. So, yeah. Basically, you know, the, the he is essentially the sidekick in this film, despite the fact that you know he's front and center on the poster. Yeah, um, Wang Chi, played by Dennis Dunn. Yeah, he's actually the, he's actually the hero of this film. A hundred percent, because it's it's his journey. It's it's all about his fiance who gets kidnapped. His um kind of his development throughout the whole thing, because. Jack Burton doesn't really develop much beyond a man-child. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and he's got no idea what's going on. He really, his only interest is to get his truck back. And he, you know, yeah. um, as he sort of put it so succinctly, he's really dragged through this kind of thing. It's like, I don't really want to be in this kind of thing. It's just sort of, he's just there. Um, and because of that, you know, um, there, there's some fantastic um, South Park episodes about that sort of thing, where the kids are trying to get their game machine back. Um and uh, you know they can't. They're sort of being dragged into this global sort of you know yeah. uh, spy thriller. Like, don't care. We just want our machine back. And you know, <laughs> um, they just sort of reminded me of this one when, when I was watching it. But it, from a, in the mid eighties again, having Jesus Christ today, there wouldn't be many, um, wouldn't be terribly many um, Asian actors mm. who would headline major Hollywood action film. Jackie Chan. And I don't think Chow Young Fat or um, anyone like that would do it anymore. He's probably a little bit past it. They did at one point in time, I mm. guess, or Jet Li. Yeah. Um, but apart from those sort of guys, in the 80s, having a guy like that, uh, you're basically your hero is basically, you know, an Asian-American um, is is certainly unusual and really subversive and really clever of, of John, uh, John Carper and the writers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's a comedy. It is a hundred percent played for laughs, but you can't help but fall in love with the um, just the way that Asia, the Asian community in and and this is it's it's such a wonderful rare occurrence for the film to actually be set in and filmed in San Francisco to have so much of that character be the the real star of the show i mean the the opening sequence where you're seeing the docks where jack burton comes into it's alive it feels lived in it it it's it feels genuine and then as the story quickly progresses you get introduced to this absurd fantasy side but when you look into it it's like okay this is kind of the twisted certain kind of uh, legends and myths and things like that from Asian culture. But it, it, it kind of fits in a weird jigsaw way and none of it is actually disrespectful. Well, so I, I hope it's not disrespectful to, uh, to anyone who actually watches it, who genuinely understands Asian culture far more than I do. 
it, I think it's because it's got that. I mean, Asian culture isn't above poking fun at itself. True. Um, True. Very, I mean, what was it? The um, trying to think of it was as a was a kung fu hustle. I don't know if that was actually a, oh, a, a production or so an American production, you know, set in Asia. But there are actual comedic kung fu mm. movies. They're not averse to having a laugh. Um, yeah, and you're right. Like obviously, we probably are not the people who can make that judgment call. Not being <laughs> aficionados of Asian cinema, nor being mm-hmm. Asian ourselves. But um, you're right. It does come across as authentic, and I feel like mm. that's because it's done a with love. Yeah, um, I, I feel like John John Carpenter was probably a huge fan of Asian cinema, mm-hmm. um, and um, I, I think that because so much of the actual cast is Asian, yeah, like if they if they seriously if they cast white guys, yes, yeah. you know, in the kung fu scenes, that would not been okay. I mean, yeah. the fact that they went out and they got James Hong. Oh my god, I um, love Hong, James Hong. Hong is a legend. Yeah, he is fantastic. And Victor Wong as well as Egg Shen. They're they're two fantastic guys who just always bring it. And they have they have that wonderful ability of both of them have those have moments where they're really sincere and earnest and they have this gravitas to them. But then at the same time, they have this stupidity. Like Egg Shen is consistently, like when he's driving around being the tour guide, he's an oaf. But as you learn more about kind of his kind of standing and position in society in San Francisco, in the Asian community, it's like, oh shit, there is tons of depth to this guy. And um, David Lopin is terrifying throughout the whole thing. First introduction, he's just standing there and he's like, come on, run me down. Like, okay, that's weird. And even when he's bedridden and old, which incidentally, the effects on that are fantastic. I love them. He, He still feels like this weird, evil, genuinely terrifying, debilitated Mr. Burns and crossed with like a Howard Hughes kind of weirdo, but it's never played off as just absurd. And Dennis Dunn um, as Wang Chi, he's beautiful. The the kind of where he is talking so so from the heart about the legends and how he even plays it, um, where he's just being really honest about how it was the difference between from being a child to being an adult and then seeing oh, it's actually real. And the way that he played it with against Kurt Russell, it was beautiful, really beautifully done. And it's surprising he didn't go on to have much of a career after this, really, um, because he was wonderful in this. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting to read that originally um, John Carpenter wanted to cast Jackie Chan in that role. Um, that which would have been pretty cool. I've got to be honest, like, as good as Dennis Dunn was, mm. that would have been fucking cool. What would have been interesting, I mean, this was at a point when I think maybe the only real mo- real Western movie that Jackie Chan had done was um, Cannonball Run, possibly. Well, that's the thing is apparently the, it gets to go with the IMDb trivia, the word in the street is here, but um, producers were concerned that his English wasn't good enough. Mm. Um, but originally they saw him do um, uh, something and they said, oh, you know, maybe he can, but he turned the role down. Yeah. So but I'm just curious about, you know, Jackie Chan has made so much of his career about being um, lovable and comical. Then, whereas the character of Wang Chi, he does have funny moments and he definitely needs the martial arts skills, but he's definitely more of a serious role than, than what you generally kind of instantly associate 
with Jackie Chan. <laughs> I'm honestly not familiar with Jackie's films from Hong Kong, from, from his Asian cinema. So mm. I don't know if this is if he if it's just the way that Hollywood cast him when he got maybe to maybe. the United States, or because once you sort of get typecast, right? I think I think it's a bit right. like. Um, you know, I don't think he, for years I don't think Schwarzenegger wanted to be a bad guy until you know Batman and Robin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I mean, maybe maybe Jackie thought it'd be bad for his career to do bad guys roles in America. Um, yeah, maybe. Um, but all the same, so really, uh, it, uh, James Hong, I just <laughs> love him. Like he pops up in the weirdest places. He was in episodes of yeah. Seinfeld. He was in Doogie Howser. He was in uh, Wayne's World Two. Um, Kung Fu Panda. He's um, man is a machine. He's ninety one. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, he's, he's always, even in just little bit roles, voice parts, he brings it every single time. He is great as the weird guy who deals in eyes in the original Blade Runner. And it's just all over the place. He is a living legend and it's phenomenal. He has a 440 credits on IMDb. So, um, oh. and I'm still getting credits here going back to the late 50s um so in mid 50s a career going 70 years yeah uh, Holy and shit his most recent credit well he has credits for this year and stuff coming up for next year uh, seem to be voice acting mainly but you know yeah. um what a what a what a treasure yeah. and interesting to read here is i was thinking the same thing while i was watching it it's like the guys in the big house of the, the seasons the spirits um the uh, oh the storms the storms I'm like, geez, they're very, they are very Mortal Kombat. And so it was interesting to read that they were an inspiration for some of the Mortal Kombat characters, as was um, James Hong's Le Pan. Um, I can believe that. I can believe isn't that. It's interesting how these um, these ideas sort of cross-pollinate. So, yeah. you know, like James, James um, so uh, Carpenter is, you know, uh, John Carpenter is, is, is inspired by these Hong Kong films, mm. creates his characters go on to create, create iconic uh, video game characters who yeah. you know, become movies in of themselves and, you know, you know, it, it hugely influential in video games and film moving forward. It's, um, it's a wonderful thing. And it's so weird how it sort of sort of flows through like that. Yeah. Um, and we haven't even mentioned uh, Kim Cattrall in this as the, um, the white female love interest, I guess, because she's not, Wang Chi's girlfriend, um, but she is the other girl with green eyes, and she gets pulled into this, and she is absolutely charming in this. She is not a damsel wait looking to be um, rescued. She wants to fight for her own things. She, in many ways, she's got. I kind of similarly her character, uh, Gracie Law, to kind of Lois Lane in with so like her curiosity and her determination to stand on her own own two feet and just not let anything hold her back kind of gets her into a lot of trouble but she never kind of expects anyone because she is very aware that the one guy that is showing her a lot of childlike obsession is an idiot so it's like, no, I'm I'm not waiting for you to save me. I've got to do what I need to do to get out of this. And she's really wonderful. And even at the end, the she falls in love with his affable, lovable uh, personality. But it doesn't ruin her or anything like that. And they don't go off into the sunset together. It's actually kind of an, a realistic relationship that they, that they go on. 
Um, I also to call out some of the female stars, and it's Kate Burton as Margot. Yeah, um, is fun. And this, if you, in case you're ever wondering if this is really a comedy or not, there's a there's a great scene where she just goes into exceeding detail explaining who David Lopan is, and oh, you mean David Lopan, the reclusive millionaire businessman who hasn't been seen in years and doesn't come out except for once a year and hasn't been seen in public, and you know, like it's like <laughs> the Simpsons would have written you like, no, that that's deliberately hilarious. Yeah. Um, as none of this is by accident absolutely absolutely and we talked about um we talked about it with um the thing about the kind of reality and believability of all of the people in um working at um the the space uh, the space station the ice station um and how they all had these kind of pre-existing uh levels of believability and history to them i feel that it's a very similar comment that you can put against all of these guys as well not i, I mean i've mentioned about the the depth the the um unveiling depth of egg shen's character but also even people like eddie lee who he's like a throwaway guy but every time he's he's fully formed he is he is a person and this uh, sequences where um the uh the chang sings uh, I think it's the Chang Sings, the good guys. They come into um, Egg Shen's place and they're just kind of like eating. And there's this kind of like a militia style camaraderie between them all. It just all is believable. It's great. Um, for sure. Um, it's, he's, <laughs> no, I just trying to remember some of his lines, but he's, he's, yeah, he just has this way about him. It's really, really easy. Yeah, um, and you sort of feel like you know these characters, even though you've just met them. Yeah, I, I, it was, it was my, my kind of the, his real introduction, where he walks in and um, Jack Burton's on the phone, and he walks in singing a, um, uh, singing a song to himself, and then he just starts kind of chiming in straight away, and you, I think the fact that it's like, oh, I know who you are, um, uh, Wang Chi has talked about you, and ah, the guy whose truck got stolen, it just helps build out this world of everyone talks about everyone and everyone knows what's going on underneath, but everyone who isn't part of that community doesn't get it or doesn't see it or isn't welcome um, because they don't get it. They won't see it. They won't survive it. It's just great how it all kind of flows. It's really, really wonderful. I love it. Um, it does show its age in a couple of points. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, especially in some of the early scenes uh, where uh, three gang members are able to uh, kidnap a woman at gunpoint in an airport um, <laughs> and just sort of waltz out of there. Like they're able to pull guns and shoot at people in an airport. Um, and quite aside from the fact that um, uh, that uh, Dennis Dana and Kurt Russell are able to walk up to the gate to meet um, <laughs> people coming off a plane, which is... Uh, it was a simpler time then, It was a different time. You, once upon a time, you were able to do that, you know. Yeah. Um, I can remember that. <laughs> smoking um, or non-smoking on an aeroplane, sir. Um, it makes reminds me of flying high with a smoking ticket. Um, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, so you're like, okay, three gang members with guns just pulled them out. There's no security. Just, no. I mean, like, they were, like, just get in the car outside the airport and leave. I'm like, oh. Yeah, the 80s. What a time. Yep. Um, but other than that, I mean, the effects, I think, uh, apart from the politics of stealing people from airports, um, the effects hold up pretty well for the most part. I mean, I was looking at it going, 
it's like it's not top of the line CGI. Top of the line CGI would look better today, but mm. I think I like this better. It's it just further adds into the character and the world that John Carpenter is trying to present to you in the movie. It fits the 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 theme and feel and environment of the movie. Um, you know, I I really love where um, James Hong is sitting in his chair and that really super bald liver spotted head with just a couple of whiffs of long white hair on it just starts pulsating and glowing yellow as he turns into the spirited david lopan it looks awesome uh, i always let the the floating uh, guardian before the eyes um, <laughs> that, that thing i mean it, it it's not perfect but i like the fact that it's a is a practical special effect for it yeah so, absolutely cgi the fuck out of that today yeah and i don't think it would look as cool for D fans who might not have seen this movie imagine a really dumb looking beholder it's got all these tentacles around it's got a mouth that uh, an eye in its mouth that is at the on the end of its tongue and it's it's just a a grotesque floating ball that's just it's a century and it's just making stupid noises it's 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 pretty fun probably the only effect i don't enjoy in this film is the battle between egg shen and lopan at the end with their little you know with gems or something and they're shooting lightsaber crystals yeah that's a good way of putting it that just doesn't work for me um i think if you had your time again you might come up with a little bit more of an interesting um and more of an interesting conclusion well it is interesting in the sense that egg shen and uh, hasn't really been the protagonist of our story so yeah. uh, again we sort of said it's usually it, it, it's it's uh, it's it's a character played by um dennis Dan wang chi mm. um and it's all you know to some degree for comical purposes jack burton but um but, yeah. but egg shen but it's, it's really unusual in in the film to have the um decisive battle fought by you know a side character essentially yeah yeah there is one thing that i would like to call out that absolutely nails this into the era of 1980s more than anything else in the whole movie and that's the fact that this temple for david lopin's resurrection and um, resurrection into humanity so he can become a god basically they went to the trouble of getting neon lights and putting an escalator in (laughs) (laughs) it's like an underground mall it's weird (laughs) Nothing, nothing says class like David. Really, seriously, you'll love the neon, mate. It'll look amazing. Just, just imagine it, David Lopan. Okay, you, you don't have to float. You don't have to do anything. You just stand at the top. The lights are going to be on, and it's just going to carry you down, man. And it's going to look fabulous. Strike a pose. People will go nuts. (laughs) It'll be fabulous. You'll, yeah, you won't know. You you won't know what hit you. If you're that sick. There's a scene in that. No, I'm not going to go. It's another 80s film I was going to reference, but I think it's too obscure. Um, but uh, I hadn't noticed the neon, but you're right. It really did look like a food court. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, that, that, that kind of design level of a bad guy's base doesn't happen much anymore. They're very, very urban and utilitarian. Yeah. They're almost, almost clinical in many ways. Where's the personality? Yeah, give it, give me a bit of, you know, like like um Scorpio's base in the episode of The Simpsons, you know, with the uh, yes, you know, <laughs> which, 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 France or Italy? No one ever says Italy. 
this was this was fun revisiting, even if it is probably the third or fourth time I've seen it this year. Get in and see it now before they ruin it with a remake, though. We yep. haven't had any news about the remake for a couple of years now, so true, might, true. might be lucky, and they might get there's a whole bunch of stuff getting chopped right now because of um, uh, COVID. So mm-hmm. maybe this is one of those little projects that they won't actually happen. Now, I said that I had a plan on where to go, which is why I've been in in control of the chain movies for two. We are going somewhere a little bit different. It's almost as if we're going somewhere previously undiscovered we are following kim cattrall to star trek the undiscovered country Ooh, yeah, yeah. cold war star trek film yes i figured i figured it would be a nice antidote for modern day star trek going back to a very cold calculated star trek no it will be this is one of the good ones um yeah i know it's, uh, it's, um uh simon Pegg was famous for saying the even numbered films are the good ones <laughs> but it's true it's true so that is where we're going to be going next week ladies and gentlemen star trek the undiscovered country the classic the og crew of william shatner leonard nimoy deforest kelly james Doonan, uh walter koenig michelle nichols george decay and then we've got kim cattrall in there as lieutenant valeris that's right, ladies and gentlemen. So you might have seen Kachin Control from Sex in the City, but yes, she played a Vulcan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, do you want to talk about some of your stuff, or shall I go first? I can start with one if we like. I, I actually saw a, a rare thing um, mm. this week. Um, uh, a new movie. Um, not, like a, not like a movie I haven't seen before. Uh, an actual new release type movie okay uh that actually has been you know credited with a release this year uh, <laughs> get to the point <laughs> and that is the russell crowe uh action thriller unhinged okay where did you watch this um yeah, on the internet i'm just gonna try and remember exactly where it was i got my where you can find yourself a copy from it is actually playing at cinemas in australia right now so okay. if you are a um, you are keen to see it, you can in another state of Australia, mm-hmm. you can actually just go to an actual cinema. It's showing at the drive-ins here in Melbourne. So if you're um, near one of the drive-ins, you can go and see it there. Um, and as I sort of said, the only real star of any note in this film is okay. Russell Crowe, who plays Man. Man. That's his character's name. Is man. He unnamed <laughs> man. So um, after a confrontation with an unstable man at an intersection, a woman becomes the target of his rage. Um, this is quite a brutal film, and this is an interesting. Okay. We're talking about very well acted, well known actors who then take a departure from you know playing the roles they're famous for, and you know mm. heroes and really go the other way. This is Russ really going left field. I mean, he hasn't played a villain like that. I can't remember the last time he played a villain, probably going back to the early 90s. Um, he played a, vill- a serial killer in Denzel Washington film called Virtuosity. Which is so hard to find now. Um, I hadn't tried, but it, I remember being pretty good. Um, right. And see, he's playing a, a freaking, unhinged is the word, he's a psycho in this movie. The film basically opens with him. We kind of put the pieces together. We're not exactly told, but basically... Mm invading his ex-wife's home, beating her and her lover to death, and then setting the house on fire. Wow. Okay. We don't see this necessarily, but 
we are outside the house. I mean, I'm not giving any spoilers. It happens in the first two minutes of a film. Okay. Um, but you, know, you, you can sort of see all this. We are detached a bit. But, you know, that's the insinuation of what we're looking at. Um, and, you know, through further dialogue later in the film. Um, so he is basically, yeah, he's, he's a guy who's lost everything and has kind of lost his marvels as a result, unhinged, if you will. Um, and we sort of crept between after seeing him perform this incredibly violent act, uh, mm. we sort of cut to learn about our protagonist of the film, uh, Rachel, played by Karen Pistorius, which is an unfortunate surname considering the only other Pistorius I know is Oscar. Um, and if you don't know who that is, Google him. <laughs> um, and she's not been in anything I've seen before. She was in Mortal Engines, which I think you've seen. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm not familiar uh, with uh, most of her work. Though I, I think she's actually a uh, um, South African Kiwi sort of mm. hodgepodge. Um, anyway, so she is a young mother mm-hmm. um, with a son named Kyle. And we see her sort of scurrying around trying to get ready in a hurry in the morning to get to work on time and get the kids to school on time while there's some sort of um, – some sort of problem it's a uh, meaning that the traffic's backed up like crazy that morning on her way to work we see she's having a pretty bad fucking day because she gets fired on her way to work she's going to be late mm-hmm. um only when at that point in time does she bump into uh russell crowe's man character who is uh sitting at a uh, a red light green light but not moving and so she honks him and that was a mistake okay uh and that sets him off all you gotta do is honk the guy and like basically from there it turns into um, the two films that probably reminded me of most of from that point in time were Falling Down. I was going to say, yeah. And Duel, the, uh, oh, the yep. Steven Spielberg film, which, of course, is the story of, you know, a, you know, a truck and a car playing a cat and mouse game over mm-hmm. a day. Um, and, you know, obviously, if you've seen Falling Down, it's sort of, you know, a guy, you know, losing Having a shit. really bad day. Basically having a really bad day and having a breakdown and, and it sort of going left field in a very violent way. Mm. This is not either of those films. It's not anywhere near the quality of either of those films. It does not qualify the carry of the bags of those films. Okay. Um, but it's – you can see their influence in the story. And so basically it turns into a – not even a cat and mouse game, basically a, a freaking romp, a, a brutal romp through her life. Russell Crowe – is um, quite good, has basically got nothing left to lose and decides to make this um, Car- Rachel, Karen Pistorius' mm-hmm. character, the um, beneficiary of his vitriol for the day. And that vitriol is expressed in an extremely violent manner. This is a really nasty film. Like, nice. another way to describe it. it was nasty. It was unpleasant, really unpleasant. It made me feel dirty watching it. I felt like I wanted to take a shower afterwards. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. ever seen it made you feel that way. And, like, there was mm-hmm. no... Like there was Russell Crowe's motivation was very poorly defined. Hmm. Um, and other than the fact that he sort of said, Oh, I'm the biggest, you know, most worthless man in the world, or something like that, basically hmm. giving an indication that his wife has left him, you know, hmm. he's lost his job kind of thing. Um, and you know, nothing left to lose kind of character. Um, yeah. And you know, but at the same time, it's very, very weak um, motivation. And his motivation for fucking with Rachel is very, very weak. Uh, and she honked him and she just decides to make her life miserable and in, in a really brutal way. Um, and then it, it also stretches credulity a few times. Like he does stuff. And I'm not going to spoil it in case someone wants to see it, but he does things and you're kind of like, yeah, where are the fucking cops, right? Like, cause, you know, 
Yeah. At the start of the film, there's like uh, Rachel's watching a news story going, oh, a man murdered two people in his house and the police are looking for him, a man in a large grey truck. So they know who he is and know what car he drives. <laughs> but he's they able to run. romp around town and like... Where Where is this set? Is this like uh, Unidentified City, uh, uh, America, it's Australia? In the, it's in the United States. It is an American okay. film. Um, it's not, I don't think we know exactly what city it is. Like, I, 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 yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I didn't, uh, just looking at the, the poster for it, it's like the big thing aside from Russell Crowe is unhinged. Um, it's got the tagline, he can happen to anyone. That yeah. kind of sounds like what you're saying about this movie trying to be horrible and trying to scare you rather than tell a story of some, something that is horrible. It is almost like scare tactics when yeah absolutely it's more like a it's more like a horror film i would say than an action mm. thriller like i would say falling down would be an action thriller because if you go mm. back and see falling down again now and I, i'm i haven't seen it for a while but there's a lot of subtext going on in that film that's um yeah. that film's saying something there's, mm. there's, a, there's a message in there from joel schumacher in that film yeah um uh, but this one has no message other than bad men hurt people Mm. Rah scared of everyone. Yeah, um, there's stuff like him where he would be sitting right behind her and he's crashing his car into her car, like softly, you know, banging his car in the back of her car. It's surrounded by traffic. No, um, no, no, no one does no anything. anything. No one's calling police. There's no indicate, you know, like you know, um, spoiler, slight spoiler here, but he basically beats someone to death um, in, a, in a in a in a diner. Okay, full of, full of people. And nobody does anything. Welcome to Texas, bitch. <laughs> um, yeah, in fairness, one thing I'll say of it, like, the only good thing this film has really going for it is the fact it's got Russell Crowe in it. Like, okay. this is an absolute B movie, you know, like, that somehow managed to attract A-list talent. Um, okay. If, if Russ is still A-list talent today. Um, I still think Russ is a very capable actor, given the right role and the right script. Mm. And he does what he can with this character. He is genuinely menacing, like genuinely menacing. Like, I mean, I think I go back to that film Virtuosity. I remember he played a serial killer. I'm like, mm. I remember thinking, he's really good at this. He should do stuff like this more often. Mm. And he really hasn't. No. Um, but I'm, I wish he, I mean, he shows some real skill at playing a really menacing villain. He is, I assume he's wearing um, prosthetics. I don't know if he's, or you just put on a shit ton of weight um, because he's genuinely huge. He looks huge compared to everybody else in this film. Not necessarily like fat huge, but just like a real bulky. unit, bulky. He looks, he is a huge guy compared to everybody else. So that's probably the only saving grace in the scene where um, he uh, beats the guy to death in the diner. Mm. He's just compared to everybody else around him. He's so big and so intimidatingly large. Um, he, you know, you go, well, Maybe I wouldn't tackle him either. Yeah. Well, he, Russell Crowe is one of those guys that kind of made, especially earlier in his career, he made a bit of a name for himself by being semi-method and being really, really brutal and hard and hardy. You know, he's always been, uh, he's always pushed himself to his limit. And there's always, especially in his earlier stuff, like I'm thinking Romper Stomper, where he's fucking volatile and his character in LA Confidential, he's, a good guy, a nice guy, but he's he's shown as muscly and strong and kind of 
almost like a barbarian trying to trying to figure out the the smart process, but realizing no, I do my my talking with my fists kind of thing. He's so good in that movie. All right, that's a fantastic movie. Full stop. But yeah, he's amazing. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah I look. I mean, there's a reason this film got dropped in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right? Uh, maybe this would have gone straight to streaming at a different time. I was kind of surprised it didn't. Now, mm-hmm. considering, I mean, I don't know how much money you're, you're going to make at the cinema these days, but mm-hmm. I mean, it would have been, um, it would have disappeared beneath the waves of higher profile material under normal yeah. conditions. It's, mm, I would struggle to recommend it. Like, I would really yeah. struggle to say. I can't say I enjoyed it. I didn't hate it at the same time. And just like I said, it was nasty and unpleasant mm. and nihilistic okay it just sounds some... like it's not even trying to be liked not really i mean if it was it failed um and i mean i didn't even get the catharsis at the end of it mm. whereas you know if it's a slasher film every film has this place if it's a slasher film and you know it's a slasher film you're going in the sea that's mm. fine right that can be a lot of fun yeah. But there's a catharsis at the end where you have a, usually the heroine, you know, takes down the um, takes down the um, yeah, the the, the slasher at the end of a film with a, with a, a quippy one liner and you know walks yeah. away into the sunset kind of thing, you know, and you kind of like okay, well at least you know it was pure escapist entertainment and I enjoyed it for what it was. In this film, I just didn't get even that sense of catharsis at the end to go. I mean, like spoilers, Russell Crowe dies in the end. Shocker, horror. I know. <gasps> Um, come back. Death isn't the end. Well, you know, he'd be like, yeah, um, like uh, Clark Gregg in uh, the Avengers. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but, you know, um, he, he dies at the end. And then, you know, obviously they drive away and you're kind of like, I'm not really like, I just have this pervasive sense of unpleasantness. And like I said, it felt a bit dirty having watched him. Like, after what he's done to her and her family during the course of a story, you're kind of like, I don't think I'd be driving away smiling after that. No, sorry, yeah. Bob. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 um it's a B movie with an A grade actor doing his absolute best in the lead role. I don't know why Russ wanted to do this, but they're very lucky he did. Otherwise, this would have been straight to video material. Okay. Okay. All right. What's on your agenda for this week? So my new movie released in 2020 was um, actually, uh, it's a remake of um, a classic Hitchcock movie, Rebecca. Now, this is one that came out on uh, Netflix uh, only about maybe three weeks ago. And it is not my sort of movie. I love Hitchcock movies, but Rebecca was one that I never got around to. The original was from 1940. This one is um, directed by Ben Wheatley, who is an acquired taste. Yeah, he is. He's definitely got a style. This is his out of the movies that I've watched of his, this is the easiest to watch, but there is still definitely his style across the whole thing. Like, um, a, f- a few years ago for a, for the Halloween movie session, we watched uh, Kill List, which was a bizarre movie from 2011. Um, and then in t- 2015, he uh, produced a Tom Hiddleston-led um, High Rise. Um, he's kind of got this unusual style and unusual mannerism of a movie that you either can appreciate 
or you just don't want it at all. It's not that you don't get it, you because you're probably going to get his movies. He's not exactly the most subtle of guys in telling a story, but it's just like, no, that's not the sort of thing that I like. I, I don't care. I'm not going to judge it in any way, whether it's quality or not. It's just something I don't like. I find his stuff really interesting. I don't know necessarily if I like it. But um, this is kind of good. And that's unusual to say about a Netflix movie. <laughs> it stars you seem, be, things. You, you seem to be the one because its reviews are not good. No, it's it's true. Um, but there's something about it that really plays with me because, you know, they they on the, um, IMDb, they say that, number one, this movie is a drama, mystery, romance, and thriller. I don't think that's really right. I think it's a psychological horror in a social manner because um, I'll just call out the, the cast because the three big players in it are all great in it. Uh, Lily James plays Mrs. De Winter, the, the, the new Mrs. De Winter. Um, Army Hammer, who I have so much respect for over the last, the last few movies that he's come out with. He's showing some good acting chops. He's, he's developing really nicely as an actor and Kristen Scott Thomas, who is pretty much always amazing. And um, for those who don't know, it's a young newlywed, uh, a young newlywed arrives at her husband's imposing family estate on a windswept English coast and finds herself battling the shadows of his first wife, Rebecca, whose legacy lives on in the house long after her death. And that is the plot, but it's not the story. The story is so much more twisting, turning, private, close. There's elements of the upstairs, downstairs kind of um, aristocracy that was played out in um, uh, uh, Gosford Park. Yes. Anything like that. but you, it's it's a very largely a very very focused movie on Lily James's character, and she is she starts off as just um, basically a put upon aid to this grotty woman of mild mild popularity in social circles in uh, I think it's Monte Carlo or one of these very very beautiful decadent high-class, high-society places, and she accidentally meets Army Hammer's uh, Maxim de Winter. They hit it off, and um, in a whirlwind of romance, that they they play lo- these really lovely scenes, and you get these little snippets of broken character coming out of army hammer. He's very charming. He's very affable and very open. And he doesn't care about the society gap between him and Lily James's character. Um, But then every now and then these little tiny moments just come in and he turns on a dime and he can be really scary. And as someone who hadn't watched Rebecca, I wasn't sure if this was, kind of like a a domestic abuse kind of thing where so often um, uh, Hitchcock movies kind of twist the characters and they end up becoming one thing or another. That's not the case. He is 
he's a broken man in so many ways but as the story progresses and as lily james learns more about him and when they go to this beautiful estate that he owns and is run by kirsten uh, scott thomas's mrs danvers you find that yes he's the lord of the manor but there's not really much that he's actually in control of and he is a in many ways he's a puppet unto his own things and this looming hellish um untouchable godlike presence that is rebecca his his ex-wife his his former wife it just looms and just continuously continuously gets bigger and bigger and bigger in the whole movie and you never once see her you don't see her in any flashbacks or anything like that it is just her presence that is felt and the kind of existence her her personality exists beyond and the people that knew her that loved her that hated her that were obsessed with her that reviled against her and poor lily james character is repeatedly battered and beaten from one to another while she just wants to be in this such honest and beautiful and charming romance with maxim it's really good and it plays itself so well it's quiet it's not trying to do anything flashy or fancy it's a movie that doesn't really get made anymore and i think that's one of the reasons why i like it i'm, I'm a very big hitchcock fan and Seems like you're in a hiding and nothing trying to remake hitchcock though oh yeah you're never really going to be able to do it um the closest that i think before this someone got was um there was basically uh basically a, a a hitchcock variant um called uh grand piano with elijah wood and john cusack that was pretty good but it lost it in the end um this maintains its character and its personality and its attitude and the story that it wants to tell it starts it and finishes it strongly this is a very well-rounded movie overall i don't think many people are gonna like it and the reviews kind of mirroring what i think people will like but if you like that more old school very um it's old school, it's old cool sorry old school code for slow um yes it is it is slow um but there's also this um kind of borderline kind of gone with the wind epic romance feel to it that will frustrate people who want to go in for it as a romance because ben wheatley is like yeah that's there but that ain't my focus so you are going to be unfulfilled sorry this is a movie that wants to put you the audience in an uncomfortable position and emulate how um lily collins character feels throughout the whole thing uh lily james sorry you are feeling what she feels throughout this whole thing you are her character and it does that really really well but you are going to be put through the ringer and most people aren't going to like the way that she is treated the way that she feels and by the end of it there is kind of comeuppance and um the cathartic release but it's still kind of it's not that typical hollywood yay the 
the good guys won. I feel good. Everything's worked out. It's it's great. Everyone's grown. Everyone's developed. It's like okay, what I wanted to happen happened, but I still feel a little unfulfilled, which is again very much in her character. So it captures the character really, really well. I think that's what Ben Wheatley seems to be really good at doing is making the audience feel like the person this story is following. Okay. Well, it's yeah. a departure for him. Anything that, any Ben Whitley film I remember seeing is that film we saw a few years ago, Kill List, which was, mm. as you noted, oh, no, I saw Free Fire as well. That was shit. Um, I liked parts of that. It was shit. Um, <laughs> it was fucking awful. Um, but uh, oh, I hated it. Um, so... But then again, I suspect watching two of these films now, I suspect that's Whitley's jam, right? Like he's one of those directors. Yeah. People are going to go like, are you, I don't know if you're familiar with Todd, Todd Saldons who made um, Welcome to a Dollhouse and um, a few other films like that. Mm. Uh, if, if you if you know who he is, you know who he is, right? Mm. Um, he was sort of like a, a bizarre filmmaker du jour in the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Um, Happiness is another one of his. And if he's just one of these guys, like I get his stuff, right? Yeah. I remember going, this guy is a fucking genius. Yeah. But like I reckon ninety percent of people who watch his films and go, This is the worst thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. Uh, and he's just one of those guys splits them. You know, there's no middle ground. Yeah. There's there seems to be like Britain in particular, maybe maybe it's just because I'm British and I, I like to spot the local grown talent, I guess. But um Every now and then this this name pops up that just suddenly appears and has this identity, like Shane Meadows. I love a lot of Shane Meadows' work, but there are people who just go, no, this is England, was it for me? That's all I liked of his stuff. Go away with the I rest like of that. it. I like that film. Yeah, I haven't seen, I don't know, have I seen any of his other stuff. Dead Man's um, Shoes is one of my favourite horror movies. It's fantastic. Paddy Considine is awesome. Love it. I have not seen anything else he's done, um, but I did yeah. like This is England. That was a good movie. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, if you if you like to be challenged by a movie in the way of being put into that character, you possibly like Rebecca. But I can't really recommend it because it's it's a hard movie to recommend because it is trying something that is not the norm. It does what it wants to do very well, but that's for a very niche audience. <laughs> Got to give kudos to someone who's trying to do something difficult. Absolutely. I, I respect the, the actors, the performances of Lily James, Army Hammer, and Kristen Thomas because they are flawless in their character um, delivery. It's really wonderful. I really, keep, really seeing, wonderful keep seeing Hoobie Halloween pop up on my Netflix, and I keep thinking to myself, you know, okay, whether or not um, Ben Whitley got this film right, he's trying to do something quite difficult. Yes. And he's got to go. Uh, Adam Sandler was trying to hit a one-inch part and miss. So, yep. Yep. Um, interestingly, uh, Ben Whitley is attached to direct a Tomb Raider film and a sequel to The Meg. Okay. That does not seem like his normal fare. Not, maybe he's trying to do a little bit of the Guillermo del Toro thing of big movie, indie movie, big movie, indie movie, and slowly trying to merge those two together. But they seem really weird departures for Ben. Really weird departures. Um, <laughs> I, I like this one, though. The name of this project? Mega Evil Motherfuckers. They do? <laughs> yeah. Ooh, 
He is attached to do um, Hard Boiled. Now, that could be interesting because that's based on a Frank Miller comic that is weird. I assume that's not a remake of the uh, uh, John Woo film. No, no, it's completely different. Um, that could be an interesting, like when the first uh, Sin City came out and it was a great match of fun story, interesting uh, production design, and just just that good marrying of, of all the talent involved. Could have something good happen there, but I don't know whether there's much of an audience for it. Well, the last uh, uh, John, it was at uh, the sequel they did to that wasn't very good, from what I heard, and never was the spirit. It, I don't know why it took so long for them to get around to to the sequel, but they should have done it straight away, and it probably would have fared a bit better. But it just felt tired and unnecessary. Speaking of films using extensive green screen, um, Liam Neeson is arriving in Melbourne this week to shoot the movie here in Melbourne. Okay. Actually, you were talking about his time on Star Wars Episode One. <laughs> what interesting you mentioned Star Wars is because they're going to use a similar type of technology they use to uh, making the Mandalorian. So you kind of go, huh? Why are you making a film in a semi-lockdown city? They're going to be filming at the Melbourne Convention Center. Okay, maybe they converted into medium. It's been converted into a studio. Well, that's a clever use of the space while no one's allowed to go there. No Comic Con or uh, yeah. you know Bridal Expo or anything. But anyway. Um, Interesting to see what those films look out. Though, get Ben yeah. Wheaton direct your um, Tomb Raider sequel. Yeah, that's going to go really, really differently. Yeah, but uh, who knows? I mean, to be honest, the bar for Tomb Raider movies is not exactly high. True, though. I, yeah, no, none of them have been very good. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say the uh, Alicia Vikander film was okay, but yeah, it really wasn't that great. No, it it really wasn't. It was unnecessary, boring, and that is the worst thing that an action movie can be. Boring. It's <laughs> true. What else has been on your uh, on your uh, plate this week? The only other thing that um, I've really had time to rewatch is um, decided to go back to an oldish sci-fi, um, the remake of Battlestar Galactica. Uh, it's a TV show. Yes, yes, it is. It's on Stan, and it is heralded as one of the modern classics of TV shows. It was very, very groundbreaking for its time. It used a lot of that almost uh, gonzo journalistic-style filming of close-ups and handheld. Um, there was a lot of um, plaudits praised for its uh, depiction of space battles with the Vipers versus the Cylon Raiders and things and the minimal use of noise because obviously no, no noise in space. It was um, very interesting. But uh, over the course of I think there's five seasons of it, the last two seasons certainly split the audience as it got a little bit too involved in faith, shall we say. Um, but I'm going through it, and I'm uh, halfway through season two now. And while the the CGI doesn't really age very well, it was at a point where, for the time, it looked pretty good. But now it definitely looks old. It looks tired. It doesn't look out of place because it was filmed well. The, the whole design of everything was well implemented. But it just looks a bit tired. But... The storytelling, the acting, and the direction of the episodes is great. It remains really strong. It's a, um, a very interesting type of story that we 
very rarely get anymore. Um, it's trying to be political. It's trying to be intelligent. It is trying to be um, engaging in a way that it's not all about the action sequences. There are episodes where it's just people talking and there's almost an element of kind of West Wing style conversation and debate between what, why should the military and the police be run entirely different? And James, uh, James, uh, uh, Edward James Olmos is fantastic as um, uh, Adama. Um, Mary McDonald, I think it's Mary McDonald. I've just got to pull up. Uh, yeah, you're right. She played the um, the first lady in um, yes. uh, Independence Day. Yes. And, and she was uh, into the president. <laughs> Uh, so the question were you a fan of um were you a fan of the original i was that was that as star trek and doctor who were the sci-fi shows that i grew up on i remember characters of starbuck and apollo and um it's so great I, I i still go back to them and those are awful awful episodes now they are really not great but there's still that nostalgia factor for them and i do like to pop back every now and then because oh boy things it 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 was it was a time capsule for a for a, a type of um society that i'm glad doesn't permeate too easily into modern society anymore for one thing but um i like many people when they first announced that they were doing this it was like okay really i mean i enjoyed it but do they want to go back to that it was kind of cheesy and hokey and it it wasn't a show that was taken seriously as in oh this is this is trying to give a message this is just oh it's sci-fi is big right now so let's make a sci-fi show then they came out with the miniseries and everyone was like oh they're just using the original show as kind of a launching point. And yeah, you get occasional, like some of the pilots are named after characters in the original, or you get the, the theme song come in as like this military riff that occasionally permeates through. But otherwise it's like, nope, we're telling our thing and we're telling a serious, serious story right here. We're, we're telling the trials and tribulations of, the last survivors of a fucking civilization as they are being mercilessly hunted by robots who have their own agenda. And it's plan great. on instituting their own world with black shark and hookers. Do <laughs> <laughs> um, you have a question for you? If I haven't seen the original, which I haven't, mm. uh, am I likely to enjoy it as much, do you think? I think you'd potentially really enjoy this you do not need to watch the original to watch this there is you don't need to kind of carry over any kind of information it's nice that there are those little pop moments of hey starbuck that's a character i know or um the the noise of the cylon um yeah that sort of stuff it's it's cool that they have those in there but otherwise it's just like okay that's terrifying as this you just hear this it's actually played really well for the effect that it's trying to to distill um 
the 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 performers are all really great and they because of the miniseries which i do recommend watching first before going into the actual series there's only four episodes i think in the miniseries it's all available on stan um you do it sets everything up really well and you do feel like it is the true beginning of a journey and through the miniseries you will quickly work out okay yep i want to stick with this or no that's not for me i remember watching it when i was on television um mm. but i don't know what i got in at the ground floor like i don't think i got it on episode one but yeah. um you're right there was a plethora of sci-fi and television at the time we had to take that star trek enterprise i think it avoid your enterprise at that point um we had um star stargate mm-hmm. uh, stargate atlantis mm-hmm. uh, and then we had um farscape as well yeah uh, if you're in america you had a season of firefly yeah. um you know and then you had this so it was really a lot of that going on which is unusual yeah um and farscape was shot here a lot of it was made here in australia yeah. So I actually tried very hard to get the fast because a lot of people I, you know, it's one of those things. If you like Trek, you should like Skyscape. I didn't, mm. and I didn't like I didn't like um, the few episodes of um, um, of Battlestar Galactica I saw either. But mm. like I said, I was coming in halfway for a season because it was on yeah. television at the time, right? If you yeah, if you didn't catch episode one, well, well fuck you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This, this is this storytelling is season long. There are one or two episodes each season which are more or less standalone, but it is one big storyline because it is true ensemble. You have got so many moving parts and characters all over the place and their allegiance is changing and um, them uh, going away for a while, coming back and um, having, having life on the show and it all interweaving and connecting. So you can't just randomly jump in and out because it's like, wait, what the, what the fuck? Um, I have no, no, it, it would be so fucking impossible to enjoy watching it that way. Um, so maybe I, if I have time and mm. uh, the other show has run out, um, I might, I might check it out because yeah. um, despite our increased freedom, I am still, um, Melbourne right now is a bit of a funny place. You go to the shops, you have to make a fucking booking to go to Kmart. Um, <laughs> I'm not doing that. Just, no, no, especially <laughs> to go to Kmart. Exactly. I'm like, people go to Kmart, and you're like, why exactly? You know, anyway, I saw so, people um, were crying when they were entering Kmart and they lined up at midnight to go to Kmart. And I'm like, I just don't need shit that badly. I have stuff yeah. delivered to me, but like, um so i mean i still stay, i mean we were allowed to go out a little bit more but i'm still myself staying home a lot more like we talked about earlier to avoid the fuckwits so maybe i will have time to check out um some of them that got star galactica and see what the fuss is about hmm. like i say anyone who is interested start with the miniseries because by the end of it it has a good complete story that is not too big to kind of go oh that's a that's a big time investment or anything like that if you like it you will enjoy the rest of it if you don't like it you haven't wasted 22 episodes worth of seasons to kind of come to a point of well fuck you george (laughs) (laughs) well look at me we've talked about it regular listeners will realize our taste diverge okay occasionally yes at the same time I, I, it is a an iconic science yeah. fiction series and like i might like it i probably i probably need to give it a red hot go to find out sure mm. 
What about you? What else have you been watching? I'd like to talk about two other things. I know we're getting a bit long, but that never happens. Mm-hmm. Never. Um, one is a documentary series which is screening on Stan at the moment in Australia, mm-hmm. and that is called Seduced, in, Inside the Nexium Cult. And people who know me, oh, I love a good cult. Love mm-hmm. a good cult. And, you know, and when I'm not watching the news about the cult in America right now, I'm watching a different American cult. Uh, this one has fortunately ceased to be, unlike the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, um, uh, some people might have heard about this one because it actually made the news in the last couple of weeks in the sense the, the leader of this cult got sent to jail for 120 years. Um, <laughs> which so, which um, deservedly so, but just sounds so dumb. It's a very, very American thing to give people giant sentences they'll never be able to go, oh, yeah, so 800 years. Yeah. <laughs> After about 50, it really doesn't matter a whole lot, right? Yeah. Um, so there are a couple of different documentaries about this cult on at the moment. There's one on in the States. Oh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's not seduced. A friend of mine in the States has told me about it. But this this one particularly follows India Oxenberg's abuse and her own culpability inside the Nexium cult, an organisation marketed as a self-help group. Um, so this one, I think the, I'm not sure about the other series. Mm. This one really focuses through the, the prism of India Oxenberg, who was a member of a Nexium cult for like 10, 12 years. Mm. The reason why she is notable is she is the daughter of Catherine Oxenberg, who was a reasonably well-known actor in things like Dynasty. Um, and oh, okay. she is also, I think, related to, she's also European royalty. Um, Catherine Oxenberg um, is related to the Yugoslavian <laughs> royal family, well known. Um, uh, and so India is her daughter who has done some rough acting around the place. She was in Starship Troopers. Can you believe that? Um, she played kid. Um, okay. But um, she joins the cult and we explore her experiences of the cult, mm. um, you know, um, through her stories about what, what went on. Um, and, and it is, it's, it's like, I mean, I, I guess it's not really particularly revelatory in the sense you've seen any documentaries about cult, you've seen documentaries about Jonestown or Scientology, mm. which there are some excellent documentaries about those out there. Um, it's kind of sounds a little bit familiar, kind of just, their entry point isn't um, particularly sinister. Mm. It's like a little bit like Scientology, you know, they have, a, they for years had a way of getting people in was to say, hey, free personality tests. Yeah, and you go into the uh, the Scientology center and you do the yeah the the e meter test, and they go, oh, you've got some sort of underlying trauma, you know, uh, blah blah blah, and you know, hopefully they'll try and get you hooked from there. So that's their mm-hmm. in is they seem like a self help program or a you know a way yeah. of bettering yourself, and you take courses and you can be you can do better. I remember I worked with a Scientologist once who actually ran some of his courses in the call center I worked in, um, which was interesting. Wow. Uh, and because um, he actually managed to convince the higher-ups that there were self-help programs. <laughs> um, so and, and Nexium kind of is a cult that borrowed a lot of ideas from a lot of different places, including mm. including Scientology. Um, and uh, a lot of their, you're sort of watching it and you go, there's a function that they do when you go to one of their meetings called EM. I can't remember what it actually stands for. Um, and um, and uh, I'm like, oh, that's auditing. 
that's right. That's auditing. That's just auditing from Scientology. And they're like, oh, you would borrow it from Scientology. I'm like, boom, I watched too many of these shows. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've never been to a Scientology center and I know what it is. Um, but it, that was their in. Their in was that they were an executive success program, I think, was it? Yeah. What they called themselves. And they, you know, you went in, you went to these classes and they helped you, you know, make sense of the world and better yourself and yada, yada, yada. Um, the guy ran it. Um, the guy who got sent to jail, Rainier, so Keith Rainier, actually was a convicted crook already at that point in time from running a pyramid scheme in the eighties. Yeah, um, but you know, whatevs, right? <laughs> and that just builds character. And so you know, there were some pretty. What I guess makes this um, fairly notable um, was it's fairly bizarre, as with most cults, it gets sexual. Um, is that it sort of gets in the fairly some fairly bizarre uh, facets of that in the sense that um, they ended up being slaves to other members. So mm. basically, so this guy Rainier started a sex pyramid scheme yep. inside the cult, um, and where he had like five or six people who were slaves to him, and each of them had three or four slaves, and each of those slaves had three or four slaves. Mm. Um, and he was sort of trying to use this to sort of build a, a network of people he thought could change the world with. Um, yeah. uh, and all of which were basically available to him whenever he wanted them for, for sexual purposes. Yep. Um, now, where it is branded as well. They were branded. There was actually, I just got to that episode that's just when it's airing. It's one of the annoying shows where there are four episodes, but they're only airing them once, one every week. <gasps> How dare they do things traditionally? And it is. It's annoying. Um, <laughs> and um, so they, they actually use a branding pen to actually draw a symbol on their bodies, mm. um, which is um, super weird. Uh, and I guess the other part of it that made it very notable, apart from their bizarre sexual nature of the cult, was some of the people involved, mm. uh, some of whom are actually pretty well, or well, not super famous, but reasonably well-known um, actors, including... Mm. Uh, Ashley Mack, is that her name? Um, uh, Alison Mack. Alison Mack, uh, who I never didn't actually know who she was before the cult, but she was in Smallville. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was a guy called Mark Vicente involved, who was, uh, well, sorry, he was a, a director who directed a documentary in the early 2000s called What the Bleak Do We Know, which I, thought, I remember seeing and quite liking. Um, and there is at least one other actor in there whose name escapes you right now. But again, she wasn't super famous. But you look at her IMDb page, she's done a bit of stuff. Um, and these were kind of people who managed to were kind of um, senior members of a cult. The more again, a little bit like Scientology, the more famous you were, yeah, the more fast track your 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 path through the cult was. And that was part of a reason I think. Um, well, that's how India sees it. Part of a reason why they wanted her and her mother on board so badly was that they would be. Almost a, a like a, a convincing factor for people. Yeah, legitimacy, legitimizing the cult. Well, you know, European royalty are involved, right? Like yeah. people. Uh, Europeans aren't weird about sex or anything. <laughs> uh, no, have you seen Benny Hill? Um, <laughs> uh, this is Catherine, uh, no doubt, she was a little bit, uh, a little bit more of a, a nose of these things. India though was uh, locked in for a number of years, um, so. But yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting documentary. It's reasonably well made. Mm -hmm. um, as I said, yeah, I haven't seen the other documentary about Nexium. It's out there. I don't know if it's been released in Australia yet. It's called, it's called Vow. That's what it's called. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, this one, I guess, 
its only weakness is in the sense that it focuses solely on India's experiences, which of course are relevant um, and very relevant. Um, and you know, it's great to hear. It's fascinating to hear. Not great. <laughs> it's fascinating to hear firsthand yeah. the experiences they went through. Um, but it, it looks like Val might have had a little bit more access to other people. Um, so I don't know when that's airing in Australia. Uh, it's an HBO. That's probably going to be on Foxtel. Um, um, but yeah, I, I would, I would, um, I would say if you're like me and you like your, uh, a film is true crimey in a way, uh, mm -hmm. if you like your stuff about cults, it's worth a look cause it's quite a bizarre story and it's just yet another one of those things where you sit there and go intelligent, educated, successful people fall for this shit. Mm. I mean, maybe, not maybe, I am a fucking cynic, a, a curmudgeon, a grumpy curmudgeon, but, like, I don't believe anybody <laughs> ever. I remember being in Paris with my, my now ex-wife, and we were at the Eiffel Tower, and I was, yes, I was sculling a tinny. That is true. That happened. I don't uh, know if you've said anything more Australian. <laughs> I was in Paris sculling a tinny. <laughs> I did actually did I actually took a photo. It was a tinny a tower. Um, <laughs> I did have a tinny, and that was I stopped. I walked a block out of my way to go to a, a supermarket so I could get a tinny. Um, and this guy with like a very cute dog came up and started talking to us. And I'm like, fucking, what does this guy want? He's gonna ask for money. He's gonna <laughs> what the fuck does this guy want? What does he want? He's super friendly. People aren't this friendly. Um, you just have images of you as a child hearing something at Christmas, running out, seeing Santa Claus. And go, what do you want? Says, Drop the presents now. <laughs> Slowly. <laughs> now um, back away. <laughs> but my, my, my now his wife was, was, was far more trusting and friendly than I was. And he was engaged just going in conversation for 10 minutes. And then he left. <laughs> he didn't ask for anything. I was just, the whole time I had my hands in my pockets. Like going, is this guy's where are these guys like accessories? He's gonna try and rob us. But um, well, Travis, I've got something to tell you now. It has been a long, long time getting to this point, but look behind you. It's a dog. <laughs> you were it was uh, even when it was the bears. I knew it was you. Um, <laughs> um, so I don't trust anybody ever. So like, I, everybody's trying to scam you usually, but. People are very friendly. Usually, they're trying. It's like when you're in, in certainly part. And I do travel in parts of the United States with, with friends, and like in rural Pennsylvania, I, I travel quite regularly in that part of the world. And I've been walking down the street in these towns, and people are like, "Good morning," and you'd be like, "The fuck you say to me?" <laughs> like people are talking to me. Why are people talking to me? I just did he say good morning? Why, why are they talking to me? Why did he say good? Why would he? I don't know that guy. Why would he say good morning to me? And so, um, you know, when people get friendly, I, I get suspicious. Um, but, uh, but at least that means I, I have no no actual human connection on a regular basis. But <laughs> I'm not a member of a cult, so you know, swings and roundabouts. Uh, we are a cult, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> only, only for tax purposes. <laughs> sweet, sweet tax money. Um, now, one more I'd like to quickly mention. Yes. Um, this one I've just started watching, and it is on Netflix, and that is The Queen's Gambit. Queen's Gambit. Okay. What is The Queen's Gambit? All of the nine prodigious introvert. Beth Harmon discovers and masters the game of chess in 1960s USA, but child stardom comes at a price. Okay. 
So this stars Anna Taylor-Joy, who looks extraordinarily familiar when I look at her, but it took me a minute to remember where she where she was from. She was in Split, yeah, Glass. And she was in The Witch, which I think you and I endured at the Cinema Nova, or at least I know I did. I think you were there. Um, I, it was one of the most I don't boring. Think I that, actually. You should be eternally grateful for that because it's a <laughs> fucking, fucking awful boring shit film um <laughs> uh, and no people think it's genius but no they're wrong it's awful um and yeah no she plays uh the, the bev Harmon, who is it says is the introvert who learns how to play chess now i am only two episodes into a seven episode season okay. um interesting factoid i learned about this has been floating around for a while mm. Heath ledger wanted this to be his directorial debut um uh, as it turns wow. out, that didn't happen no. uh, <laughs> for unknown reasons. Um, mm -hmm. It is the, the creator, and I imagine showrunner is a guy named Scott Frank. Uh, Scott Frank's probably best known work of late. He wrote Logan. Yep. Um, he uh, also wrote the Wolverine and Marley and Me and But anyway, he, he wrote Logan, which was very good. Mm -hmm. um, uh, this is really quite enjoyable, I must say. I sort of very reluctantly jumped into the first episode, and I'm like, 20 minutes in, I was like, oh, I don't know about this. It seemed a really mm -hmm. generic story about, you know, the opening shot of a season, um, Beth's parents die in a car crash. She's taken to an orphanage. And you're kind of like, yeah, I've seen TV shows where kids take into orphanages, right? Yeah. You know, it's not, this is going to do all the things I think it's going to do. Yeah. And then it doesn't really. Okay. Um, it kind of subverts, it gets you, it's where it got me interested because, like, it, you know, there's a whole lot of memes and, you know, tropes about, you know, orphanage movies and, you know, asylum mm. movies. And it looks a bit like something out of American Horror Story. Um, but, you know, you're expecting to be run by, you know, evil, sadistic, you know. We are going to take you to the basement now to begin treatment. Exactly. You know, like electroshock therapy or something. But, you know, <laughs> and you expect the people to run it to be bastards. But the people running it kind of, but at the same time, they're not exactly um, benevolent. They yeah. actually seem like human beings. Okay. Um, she is taught to play chess by the janitor. Mr. Scheibel, played by Bill Camp. And instantly, Bill Camp, when I was looking for, you know how on the IMDb app, it's sort of like, it'll actually mm. show you, you know him from all these movies that you've rated on IMDb. And I was going for all the movies I've rated with him in it. I'm like, he's in heaps of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, he was in Joker last year as one of the police officers, uh, Birdman, 12 Years a Slave, Lincoln, uh, Compliance, which if you haven't seen Compliance, Get your hands on it. It's a fucking great movie. Um, Public Enemies, uh, Reservation Road, uh, all sorts, In and Out, Rounders. Uh, he's in heaps of shit. He's just one of those faces. You would not know his name, but he's in stuff. And he's teaches her to play chess. And, you know, we quickly learn that she's got a real um, knack for it um, and that she's, you know, by the end of the second episode, we're starting to really see that come into, come into play and, you know, um, Again, you know, she's been uh, spoilers. If you don't want to know anything more about this series, I'm not going to say only two episodes in, but tune out now if you don't want to know any more. Mm -hmm. But she is adopted in the second, ep second episode. And again, 
there are a whole lot of tropes mm-hmm. about adopted children who are adopted by you know teenager girls who are adopted and there are a couple of points in time where her adoptive father so sort of looks at her sideways and you're kind of like <sighs> here it comes okay you're gonna do exactly what i think you're gonna do and then it doesn't Okay. Um, so he sort of goes, he goes, oh, no, I went right. Um, and you know, it, um, it, it, it actually, by the end of the second episode, again, like we, we have stuff happen during the second episode of her adopted parents. Uh, again, spoiler, 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 spoiler alert. I've already given you one. The dad leaves the mother. So her adoptive father leaves her adoptive mother in the second episode. Okay. But again, you know, you're kind of thinking, again, there's a whole array of tropes that you expect to be rolled out in that scenario. And by the end of the second episode, when you actually see how the mother is reacting to um, Beth's increasing, you know, fame slash skill slash accomplishment, it's in chess. It goes in another direction. I mean, like, I'm very curious to watch the next episode and go, okay, what's next? Because it's what it did at the end of the second episode kind of go, okay, that's dark. That's interesting. I like it. Um, so it keeps subverting my expectations every time just because there's, you know, as I said, I said, there's an expected response mm. and it's taking the path less traveled at each opportunity so far. And I'm liking that. Um, cool. So by the end of the second episode, it's really got me on board. I'm really looking forward to seeing where it goes next. And I'm just curious, what is it about chess? There's a lot of movies and TV shows made about a sport game that isn't very cinematic. Yeah, and there was there was that um, uh, Toby Maguire one from a couple of years ago. And, yeah, and it it always seems to be like this bizarrely hyper stressful underlay of way more going on i mean maybe that's just like hey we're taking the notion of chess and the games and the different layers and the sacrifices that we play we're going to literally consistently inject that into every chess movie ever made or maybe chess is just the actually the most dramatic sport in the world and no one knows real question Mm. why hasn't there been a chess boxing film made yet that's the film i want to see yeah. <laughs> Maybe that'll be the last Fast and Furious, Fast and Furious checkmate. Uh, where you know he still takes up chess as a hobby while recovering from a broken leg after a car crash. Look, now right that you put it out there, we have uh, we have now got a proven track record of being tastemakers in the COVID nineteen environment. You just know it's gonna be a matter of time before chess boxing is gonna be released on Netflix starring Adam Sandler, Adam Sandler Will Ferrell, and, and Kevin James. Yep. <laughs> yep. It's going to be uh, here comes the boom meets shit. Or shitter. <laughs> yeah, well, you said that already because you said Adam Sandler. Um, <laughs> Anna Taylor Joy uh, has been cast as Furiosa, apparently yeah. in the, the uh, Mad Max um, spinoff. Um, Very so- curious. Um, she's a fi- I mean, two episodes in. She's she's a very fine actress. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see her pulling off a um decent uh Charlize look. Uh, you know, shave the head. Um, maybe at some point. Obviously, they probably won't start her off like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what can I say? In George Miller, we trust. Yeah, and um, it's you know it's going to be interesting to see how long 
New Mutants is going to sit on the shelf before it is released because she is also in that. Yeah, you're joking, right? Oh, about the actual release of that movie? Because it had to come out. Wait, it has? It was released. It was? Yes, a couple months ago. Wow. Oh. (laughs) He didn't get the memo. I had no clue. Yeah, if you have a look, it's got 422 review, uh, user reviews, 119 critic reviews. There you go. Now, are, you, are you sure it's actually been released or it's not just people reviewing a movie that has not come out? It, it was released. I, it was released. I remember seeing all reviews on, on uh, YouTube. You'll wow. be shocked, shocked to know it wasn't very good. Uh, okay. The new mutants. I want to see where, where it's available because... I think not- it may be not in Victoria at all, but it was released elsewhere, right? Yeah, by the looks of it, sixty-five percent is and five point five on IMDb. We should host a watching party when we're allowed to watch it legally. <laughs> yes, we've been talking about it for two years. I think I know, I know, and our, I don't think our expectation of it has got above. It's got to be shit. I, I think from, it, from what I understand, it's a bit of a Frankenstein's monster of a film in a sense that mm. like. Josh Boone, the writer-director, started out with, you know, please make this film. And then, you know, oh, actually, you know, could you maybe recut it to make it look a little bit more like a horror film? Or, you know, they, yeah. they seem to change direction on this film two or three different times. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think that um, I don't think the film, a film or any piece of art benefits from, from that kind of thing. I think of a, a record like Chinese Democracy, the, the Guns N' yeah. Roses record, which I think is okay. Yeah. But you can sort of get, you see, sitting, you worked on that for like 15 years or something. So, yeah. like, yeah. you can sort of see the different kind of idea threads that he was going off on on that thing. It didn't really make a whole. And I feel like, from what I've read anyway, New Mutants kind of suffered from a, a similar fate and it was sort of all over shop. But up for Josh Bruno, I'm very excited to see his next project being The Stand. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, I have just started listening to the Audible book of The Stand. And, um, oh, I can't wait. I hope it's good. I hope it's good. I hope it's good. I hope it's not under the dome. Don't fuck it up, please. But anyway, (laughs) we are off topic, which never happens. Um, uh, If you've got Netflix, I think The Queen's Gambit is a nice little piece of escapism from... A, a cold and uncaring world. All right. Well, that's our show for uh, this week, ladies and gentlemen. We uh, delivered a, rev- a fairly, actually, meatier than I was uh, expecting review of Big Trouble in Little China. We are going to be watching Star Trek The Undiscovered Country for next week. Um, Travis talked about Unhinged. I talked about Rebecca, Battlestar Galactica. Travis finished us off with Seduced by uh, Nexium and Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Thank you so much. Again, like last week, we had that um, recommendation for watching The Beast. Anyone who has any recommendations for movies, TV shows, books, anything at all, let us know because we'll we'll happily uh, consume it and give our, give our thoughts and feedback because, you know, that's that's what we do and you know obviously people listen to us but um we will see you next week ladies and gentlemen good night good night